Welcome to Into the West, a Middle-Earth SVG podcast where we discuss the competitive side of the game. My name is Charles. With me today are Richard, Ian, and a special guest returning to the podcast, Sean. How are you doing, sir? Yeah, no, very good. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me on to uh, talk about my one true love. If you guys remember, Sean was on last season for our Dale episode, and uh, naturally with the release of Defense of the North, Dale's got some shiny new toys, so Sean is coming back to review what hasn't been covered before. So our main topic will be to covering the new Dale profiles in Legendary Legions. And in our open topic, we'll be talking about model positioning. But just a couple quick questions for Sean first. Sean, what kind of projects have you been working on since you last came on the podcast? Oh, I've been working on a lot. Most recently, uh, 800 points of Army of Thrall just because I like the idea of just mini tanks. Um, so just a bunch of Grim Hammers just running. I think it's like 43 Grim Hammers running up the board. It's not super competitive, but it's fun. I've done a what I've called a Wagmar army, which is an Angmar army, but it is pure Wags. So it's like 40 Wags, a couple of Barrowites, Wag Chieftains and the Witch King. And something that I never thought I'd ever do again, painting up a, a Windlance. In fact, I'm painting up two Windlances at the moment. So, yeah, I had a, had a few army projects on the go, but since I last came on to uh, the podcast, I started up a YouTube channel, the uh, Last Lines of Noobs and Men. So we do MESPG bat reps, we do tier lists, we talk shit in the classic Aussie fashion. So, you know, if you guys want to see some just crazy stuff going on, jump across. It's a good time. Yeah, Sean's got quite a interesting uh, YouTube channel over there, so make sure you check out Last Lions of Noobs and Men. And if you want to see Sean's army progress, just follow him on Instagram under Two Banner Minis. And the armies you mentioned are all quite interesting. I've never seen either of them. And I'll mention another one that I saw you work on. It was uh, All Black Guard Army as well. Oh, yeah. Uh, so I did, yeah, 500-point All Black Guard. Yeah, so, how was that um, to play? Uh, it was interesting. So I only ever ran it at one tournament, just a small 500-point tournament with my gaming group, and ended up coming third with it, which is cool. But um, I don't know. It was a fun list to play. Whether I'll ever do that again is another story. But um, <laughs> Strength 5 is awesome. Them being D6 is rough. I did go up against Hobbits in Heirlooms of Ages Past, and that was an absolute struggle because every time I failed to kill a Hobbit, that was another turn of me having to get through 60-something hobbits at 500 points, and that was a that was a task. And um, you can go and check one of the bat reps out over on the uh, over on the channel where the black guard make a showing against a couple of elves. I, I think only in Australia a crazy list like that would work. You probably um, made up for half the GW annual sales of black guard for that year. Honestly, uh, it wouldn't surprise me. We do like to do some silly stuff over here. For, so, for example, my WAG list, like whoever thought of running just pure WAGs, it's it's the worst list idea, especially when you've got 40 running around, but it is just so much fun watching 40 dogs just zoom across the board. You, you'll win a reconnoiter. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm all fun. <laughs> All right, well, we're excited to have you back and looking forward to talking about these profiles and seeing some of the lists that you brought. There was the city of Dale. Its markets known far and wide, full of the bounties of vine and vale, peaceful and prosperous. <laughs> <laughs> 
So just to get into the Dale stuff in Defense of the North. So we have two new heroes, one new warrior and one new siege weapon. So I'll just go over the first new hero of the Garrison of Dale, and that's Brand, King of Dale. He's 110 points with a man, Dale, infantry, and hero keywords. He's a hero legend. He's move six, fight five with a three plus shoe, strength four, defense seven, three attacks, three wounds, and courage five, three might, three will, one fate. He has heavy armor, sword, and a shield. His heroic actions are heroic resolve, heroic strike, and heroic strength. And he has two special rules. One is Lord of Dale, which gives him a double standfast, standfast of 12 inches. And the second one is Stoic Fighter. At the start of a fight involving Brand, check to see if he would be trapped should his side lose a dual roll, with the exception of if a friendly model can make way for Brand. If Brand would be trapped, he may re-roll a single d6 to win the dual roll, and a single d6 when rolling to wound. So it's basically saying that if he's trapped, then he has a Lord of the West rule applied to him. Lord of the East, or Lord of the North, because... Uh... <laughs> It's the Walmart version. Yeah, it's the Walmart version. Because actually, talking about Nori from Erebor Reclaim, the champion, he has the exact same thing. I don't know why he gets it, but that's the one I call Lord of the East, which is absolutely bonkers. But the wording says that, with the exception, if a friendly model can make way for Brand, does that mean that like you can trap him by? It, no, it means that you have to. If a model yeah. can make way, then it doesn't count as being trapped. Okay. Yeah. So you basically you've got to back that model away. Or you can decide not to back him away, but you will not get the re-rolls. So it's harder to strategically plan the trap. You have to yeah. actually be trapped by enemies. Or, it's really or... a last-ditch effort. There's really no strategy involved in, okay, I'm going to go and get him trapped so that he gets, you know, all these extra buffs. Yeah. It's basically a, oh, shit, he's trapped. I guess I get this cool rule. I mean, I can also see if it's like the first couple combats in the game, you got full might and you're fighting regular warrior models. So nothing like too dangerous. I can see like you maybe trapping your brand like with two layers of your own models. So he gets the Lord of the West, uh, less chance you have to spend that might to win the fight. Like definitely don't do it against like a hero of equal or higher fight where you might actually lose the fight. But yeah. I think if it's like, you know, regular warrior models, I think it's fine. That is definitely fair. But I don't know. It's the same as the legendary legion rule from Dale Erebor. It's all about getting your heroes trapped. And that's never an ideal situation. One bad roll against troops and suddenly you've lost your king. I think at first glance, this profile was a little bit underwhelming for me. Like... He's, he's a foot hero, strength four with no modifiers. So he reminds me a little bit of like like Thor, for example, you know, uh, just like a sturdy leader that's a little bit hard to take down, but can't really deal wounds easily. I think one upside for him is that he's not that expensive for a hero legend. So he can help, you know, how last when you came on last for the previous Dale episode, you said they're kind of a pseudo horde yeah. army. And I think Bran being able to lead 18 slots is helpful in that way. But as like his stat line goes and his special rules, it is a little bit just okay. Yeah, I, th I think if I'm not mistaken, except for the fate, he's the exact same as Aima, if I'm not wrong, mm -hmm. which is cool. But I think for 110 points, it's just a bit pricey. I think both of these new heroes are a little bit too expensive for what they truly offer. But at the same time, a hero of Legend in Dale that's much needed much needed 
that's a good shout out with the Aylmer comparison. So the funny thing is he's more expensive than Aylmer. Mm. Aylmer can take a horse and like you said, the fate. So I feel like he's worse, but more expensive. And I know a lot of people do like him, but I think Charles and I kind of agree that Aylmer is maybe a bit overrated too. He's he's fine, but we think there are probably better Rohan heroes. So I think like at best, Brand is like average, but leaning towards under average, I think. Yeah, no, I think, yeah, underwhelming is definitely a good spot for him. And something I'll touch on eventually in more detail, but I look at these two profiles and I go, I could take Geryon. And that's how I feel about these two guys, is it's always like, I could just take Geryon. So, yeah. yeah. Okay, so I guess my rating for Brand would just be right down the middle. I'll just say a five, because I think that he's, as we'll discuss in Legendary Legion, he does provide buffs for this army, and the double stand fast is nice, but uh, he's pricey for what he is, which is a foot hero that has sort of unimpressive stats for what you pay for him. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. I think the only other point to touch on with him is he uh, it's it's good to have a survivable hero in Dale, one that you can comfortably throw into combats and not stress because you've got the three attacks, you've got the three wounds, you've also got D7. Whereas with Geryon, where you do need that hero going in, you, you stress a little bit with the two attacks, D6. So he's definitely survivable, but yeah, smack bang in the middle. I think a five out of ten is, is where he sits. Yeah, he, he's probably the most survivable in the Dale army list, but I think overall compared to the other heroes in the good side, I don't think he's that durable. So I think I'll be consistent with my underwhelming below average rating at a four, which is actually the same as the Dane profile that we reviewed in the last episode, the new profile for the old Dane. I don't get... Old Dane got a point decrease. He went from 120 to 110. Why didn't Brand or Bard get a 10-point decrease? Because if anyone needed it out at a lot of them, it's, it was these two. Oh, I, I actually didn't notice. Because uh, Old Dane is 130. Are you talking about the beta rules when they were released when the models came out? Yeah, when the models first came out, he was 10 points more expensive. Okay. So the experimental rules. And then when the book came out, he dropped 10 points. I can't remember what. He drops two. Oh, no, he dropped 130. It must have been Thorin. Some, one of those dwarves dropped points. And I just think I just think the Dale heroes needed to drop points as well. Can I ask you, Sean, last time we were here, you advocated a lot for uh, foot heroes. Oh, yes. Is, still that, is that, that's still the case? Still there. Okay. Uh, I'll tell you now. So two of the bigger tournaments here in Queensland... I recently took Gondor to and won them fairly comfortably. One of them was a little bit controversial, but Liam, bring a display board, mate. Um, <laughs> and I took Baromir with Banner on foot and everyone, why are you doing that, man? Like, he has to have his lance or he has to be on horse if you're going to take blah, blah, blah. I'm like, nah, Baromir, best support hero. I'm a huge advocate for foot heroes. There's only one hero that I will always take on a horse, and that is Hurin. Every other hero, yeah, maybe I'll take a horse, but I don't feel like I need it. Or oh, Elendil's the other one that I would always take on horse because those free heroic combats in and out, that's a bit crazy. But no, like not having horses on these guys doesn't stress me. Not having horses in the army doesn't stress me. If you deploy properly, you move properly, cavalry is unnecessary. They're a good hammer. Oh, that's, that's a hot take. I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's a hot take. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a hot take here as well. 
I cop it a lot. And another one, like, with movement as well, Heroic March. I, like, I think it's overrated. A lot of people here love Heroic March, and they're like, I'm building my list around Heroic March. If I've got Heroic March, awesome. I might use it. Probably not. It's a cool tool to have in my back pocket, but I'm not sitting there going, all right, I need Heroic March. Unless I'm running Hobbits, I, I see it more of a waste of might than anything. This should have been the open topic. <laughs> How much do you like Heroic March? Real controversial. Well, I think both of these points, the favoring foot heroes and the heroic march, they can be expanded upon because today we're going to be talking about model positioning, which includes formations and also like model placement, right? So I, I think I think we have the right guest here for this open topic. <laughs> uh, let's do it. <laughs> okay, so we're going to go over the second Dale hero and uh, we'll get back to this later for sure. So the second hero is Bard to Prince of Dale and he comes in at 100 points. Keywords are man, Dale, infantry, and hero. He's a hero of valor. He is movement six, fight five, with a three plus shoot, strength four, defense seven, three attacks, two wounds, courage six, three might, two will, two fate. He has heavy armor, a spear, a sword, and a shield. He has heroic resolve, heroic strike, and heroic defense. And he has one special rule, which is the wall of blades. This is the same special rule as the next profile we're going to cover, the Knight of Dale. And it gives Bard to a bonus of plus one to wound when making strikes with their spear against a model that charges them this turn. So how is this profile and how does he stack up to King Brand? So I prefer Bard over Brand. Cheaper, still quite survivable with that D7. Yes, he's only got the two wounds, but he does have the two fate, which is real handy. The Wall of Blades is great for countering enemy heroes because suddenly they're like, oh, yeah, I'm not going to charge into that strength four hero with three attacks. That ain't happening. But obviously he has to be charged. Once again, I think he's overcosted at 100 points. I think 90 points would suit him fairly well. But it's the Hero of Valor, which I think is, is the big one for me. It's, again, similar to getting that Hero of Legend where you can get more models into their war bands. So that's really handy. Obviously, I, I love Heroic Strike, uh, so same on, on King Brand. They've both got strikes. They're two striking combat heroes. I'm all for. And once again, doesn't need a horse. Um, so it's, he's good. He's solid. But once again, I think I'll take Geryon over him. So I'll agree with you here that I think he's much better than King Brand. Just stat-wise, he's obviously cheaper, but stat-wise as well. I would argue that he's more survivable with the heroic defense as well. And his special rule is actually, I feel like, more applicable. You're, you're going to use it a lot more than the, you know, Lord of the East. Now that, you know, we're, we officially dubbed that special rule the Lord of the East. So I think he's fine. But yeah, it's just, you know, where I disagree with Sean, we'll get to it later. Can't take a horse. Like, I feel like if he can take a horse... I feel like with his profile and his stat line, I think he would be a really, really solid addition. And with the Hero Valor, I might just be doing some greasy things and allying him in. I don't know, but I can't justify with him just running on foot. That is fair. I think, yeah, I do think his profile would suit a horse. But obviously, I think horses come down to, to play style, that's for sure. Personally, not for me. But no, it's the, the Wall of Blades special rule comes into effect a lot. Quite a lot of the time you'll have your shield wall up front and your opponent's coming forward and they go, I'm not going to charge Prince Bard. And you go, awesome, no problem. So suddenly you've got this 
three attack fight five hero that now has choices do i go into that hero do i just go into troops what do i want to do with him and that's also another thing we'll, we'll touch on with the knights because that's that's something that uh the knights have that ability to do as well now so that's it's a really nasty special rule that one yeah, and like, you know, the trick that everyone wants to do later on in the game is to, you know, sandbag your three attack heroes with one five-point goblin or something like that and just shield the entire game. But, you know, a lot of the times, I think as a foot hero getting charged or even a mounted hero, you are a bit skeptical if you don't have any dice modifiers to call the hero combat because it's like, you know, do you want to be spending extra might to potentially win the fight because you're losing attacks you don't have like the cavalry charge and like to wound because you don't have the knockdown so with the plus one wound he is effectively strength six right so that allows you to confidently call hero combat if they only tag you with the one warrior model yeah i think this new wall of blades mechanic is quite interesting you can even use it even if you were to charge an enemy. Let's say a normal hero is hesitant to charge into multiple enemies because they don't want to be outnumbered or trapped. I think Bard, in certain situations, he can charge an enemy and his opponent might be hesitant to surround Bard because all subsequent models that charge Bard will plus take one. plus one. Yeah, yeah, if Bard wins, right? So yeah. it still applies even if Bard charges into combat. <clears throat> so oh. I think that makes him really deadly. Yeah, and it comes real handy in the, like, mid-late game where, you know, the, the shield walls are finally broken and there's just a scattering of stuff everywhere. So you throw Bard in all your knights into stuff and go, all right, cool. If you want to win these fights, you need to put more guys in. But if I somehow luck out and win this fight, you're losing a model, man. So, so I guess this is theoretical because I haven't played with him yet, but... I guess going by the way the rule is written, it says when making strikes with their spear against the model that charged them this turn. I it seems like it would work if he was also supporting with his spear, correct? Uh no, because you're not being charged as a spear support. Oh, okay. Because you're not you're not technically in the you're combat, not actually right? in the combat. You're yeah. supporting the combat. You're not essentially you're not part of the combat. So he, yeah, sadly wouldn't get that if he was spear supporting. Okay, okay. So I, I guess that's also the downside with the knight profile. They have to be in the front ranks with their spears. Which, look, I'll be honest, that is 100% where you want them. D6 yeah. in Dale is disgustingly overpowered. Dale should never have D6 models because it is, it's filthy. All right, do you want to go over the knight of Dale profile then for us? First, give your rating for Bard two. Oh, I think I think I'll put him at a I think I'll put him at a six. So he is better than Brand, but still just once again, it's still that fact of oh, I could take Gearing instead. That's what I keep coming back to with these guys. I keep building lists for them, and I just go Gearing is a possibility, and then I get an extra, you know, God knows how many troops on top of that. Uh, so I think he, he sits at a six. If I was to run this army, Bard's definitely going to be in there. But then again, with the Legendary Legion, you want to take Brand. So, yeah, I, I'll, I'll keep him at a, a nice six. Yeah, I'll go with a six, too. Uh, I, I agree he's better than Brand. And since I gave Girion, I believe my thoughts on Girion was about a seven, and I think Girion is better value for his points. So while I like Bard, too, I think six is a fitting score for him. I'll give him a smack dab, average five. I think with the horse, probably like a seven and a half. So he would go up quite a bit. Fair, fair. 
Okay, so we're going to move on to our new warrior profile for the Garrison of Dale, and that is the Knight of Dale. They come in at 11 points each, and keywords, they have man, dale, infantry, and warrior keywords. Movement 6, fight 4 with a 4 plus shoot. Strength 3, defense 6, 1 attack, 1 wound, courage 4. War gear, they have heavy armor, spear, sword, and shield. The special rules, they also have the wall of blades, which we just talked about with bard 2 where they gain a plus one to wound when striking with their spear against a model that charged them. So I know we just went over this rule with Bard 2. Would you say they're like a fairly costed model? Because I know that they come with a spear, but in order to activate the Wall of Blades rule, they have to be in the front taking the charge. So like in that sense, are you kind of not using your spear and you're kind of paying for the special rule instead of paying for the spear? Or as, as you have experience with the Knight of Dale, do you use them to support as well, maybe later on in the game? So the way I run Dale is every model has a spear, except for maybe my bows. Depending on the points levels, I'll give my bows spears. I try and do that wherever I can, but my Dale list spears absolutely chocked out on everyone. You will not see me running around with a warrior of Dale with shield and sword. That's a waste of points, in my opinion. Um, so yeah, you have the Knights of Dale there up front. You've got the Warriors of Dale in the back line supporting. And so you get that plus one when your opponent charges you. So yeah, I, I think they're fairly costed at 11 points. I know a lot of people have been saying that they're overcosted. As much as I'd like to say they're overcosted and them to go down points, that would be amazing. I do think they're fairly costed because that plus one to wound in your front line with fight four is hectic. It also has the psychological factor with your opponent of, okay, his front line is these Warriors of Dale that get plus one to wound, and his back line are Warriors of Dale with Esgroth bow and spears. Do I charge and give him plus one to wound, or do I stand here and let him shoot me? And that is something that comes up whenever I use these knights. It's a constant factor. Nearly every few turns, you see your opponent stand there going, shit, um, how do I tackle this choke point? What do I do? So I do think they're fairly costed. And as I previously said, D6 in Dale is outrageous. It's incredibly good. And and that's another reason I chuck them in that front line. It just, it protects your numbers, which you've got a lot of. And if you can protect your numbers when you've already got a lot of troops, you're usually in a really good spot. I think you make a really good point that I think in context of the army, they work really well. Like, with the pressure that you're putting on with the bows and, like, being able to spam out the numbers with your cheaper heroes, kind of make these guys better than maybe their stats suggest. Because if I was to just do a pure stats, like, in a vacuum comparison, I'm looking at probably Fountain Court from the Ministerial List. And I think they're probably a little bit worse stat for stat because you're losing the defense. Same points cost. And then, you know, they both have one special rule. One is the plus one to wound on the Dale, and then the Fountain Court has the Fearless, right? So if you say the special rules are valued about the same, obviously they do different things. You're still losing that one defense for the same points cost. Dale has the base courage of four, though, compared to the... I mean, bodyguard is better, but... Yeah. uh, yeah. But there is a point, like, they do get something for that. Okay, yeah. I guess I I don't (laughs) even look at the courage for the Fountain Court. to be fair, that increase to Courage 4, because your Warriors of Dale, they're all Courage 3. So this Courage 4 troop is big and has, has come in clutch on many occasions. 
I used to not think courage was that important, but over the past maybe year or so, I, you know, I look at the plus one courage that Gondor gets and I go, that is probably one of the best army bonuses in the game. So yeah, that, that increased to courage four. And when you're doing what I do and, you know, running anywhere between 12 to 15, sometimes even 18 nights, usually with Girion, because I can get more, but that courage four is big and, and it does come in clutch and it's yeah it's it's a big improvement for Dale because that was what I found a lot of the time before the Knights came in uh, and before the Legendary Legion and before Brand was struggling with courage especially when Harbinger of Evil decides to show up on the table so that courage for is big. I actually think that they're pretty properly costed and um, to add to Sean's point the fact that you're spamming them and you see other people who are playing competitively spam them it kind of shows that it is a viable option and one comparison i can think of when another similar type of army that got a new model to flesh it out the dunlending husk girls were not as well costed and so when people play that legion they don't spam out husk girls so i think the fact that you are able to spam out the knights and have them be so effective i think that speaks to their value and i do think that they're fine at 11 points yeah no 100 percent. as much as i want them to be like nine points like a lot of people suggest i'm very happy with 11 i'm yeah. just going to say they're 10 out of 10 <laughs> no, no 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 joke they're, they're 10 out of 10 you know, I'm not leaving home without them. They're there. They're incredible. Even when you guys play Dale. I've got 15 painted up. I've got another nine that I could paint up for a total of 24 to throw in an army. <laughs> I love these guys so much. And it's it's not even the Wall of Blades, which is such a cool rule. It's the D6. I won't stop talking about that D6 on these boys because it is D6 and Dale is disgusting. I think... Well, yeah, like in this list, no matter what, you're going to take at least some of them. And that's probably restricted by your budget and how much you want to convert rather than like if the profile is good or not. But also if this profile was in like any other army list, I think you'd probably take at least some of them. Right. So that I feel like that says a lot. Yeah, I definitely reckon if, if these showed up in a Gondor list, maybe that's probably the only list I can really think of where I go. No, I'll take the Fountain Court Guard over them. But at the same time, even then, just having the Wall of Blade special rule on them makes you kind of think, maybe I'll, I'll mix it up between the two of them. So, yeah, you, you, you make a make a very good point there. I reckon these, these are models that you could see being used in other armies as well. Okay. And then the final profile we're going to be reviewing, this was also kind of talked about in the previous Dale episode, and it is the Windlance. And I'm really curious to hear uh, what Sean has to say about this one, but... It's uh, 75 points. It is a new siege engine for Dale. It comes with two Dale crew. One of them is a siege veteran, and they are basically just warriors of Dale with the same stat line as a warrior. The engine itself has strength 10, defense 10, and three wounds. The two upgrade options are Dale engineer captain for 50 points and additional crew for seven points each. It has the accurate special rule, which means that it scatters three inches instead of six. So right off the bat, I noticed that this does not have the piercing shot special rule. So it can only hit one model a turn. Yeah, it's um, I'd like you guys to compare the Windlance to the Isengard Ballista. Yes, the Windlance can hit on a three plus because of the army bonus and the legendary legion bonus. That's cool, but it's a strength 10 bow. Awesome. Thank you. 
at least your big hero of you know Gearian and so on don't have to man it anymore which is nice and i'm talking with this assuming that you guys are okay with saying hey the windlands can be taken in a regular dale list because it should be taken in that and not just the legendary legion so it's I don't know, like, I went out and bought two Windlancers solely on the fact of, hey, I've got a 600-point Dale list with Gearian. I add in two Windlancers, and suddenly I'm at 750 points, and I've still got 40-something models. Awesome. So it's two Windlancers, two Captains of Dale with bow, Gearian with bow, and then 12, uh, 12 Warriors of Dale with bow. So there's a lot of shooting. And the two Windlancers, I think, do add some value to that. But yeah, the, the big thing is them being manned by a crew and not the big hero. That is nice. But once again, you compare this thing to the Isengard Ballista, you don't get piercing shot. It's just like, it's missing something. It's it's too expensive for what it does. It also costs 10 more points than the Isengard Ballista. That too, that too. So it's <laughs> cool. It's accurate and it scatters three. Awesome, thanks. But I'm if I'm killing one model at a time, yeah, it's it's a bit rough. I did miss one thing in the profile. It comes with superior construction for free. <laughs> so its range is no longer can it shoot through one table, but it can shoot through two tables if you play a massive oh, board. That's what I like to say. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, think like, if this was like 10 points cheaper, you still wouldn't take it. No. <laughs> no. It's just, eh. No. No, not, you, you consider it more. I thought you were going to say you were going to take it at 10 points less than I was going to pile on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, even, even at 10 points, 10 points less, you know, uh, I, like even comparing it to the Gondor Bolt Thrower, that thing's 50 points. Well, in my mind, it's 70 points because you always take swift reload. But if you compare it to the base profile of the Bolt Thrower, where's those uh, 25 points? The bolt thrower offers so much more value. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a disappointment, the Windlands. I think what could make it really think is. Is, is if it could fire like twice a turn or something. Or do something special that all of these other ballistas that have the piercing shot don't have. Then you would be able to compare maybe different utility or something. But right now we have to compare with those because they're the closest thing to this. And those are just better in every way. Yeah. I think what I would change is I would say it would have a legless, no-in-the-ways shot. What if it always fired the black arrows, like the specialty one? Isn't that like re-roll to hit and re-roll in the ways or something? Yeah, re-roll to hit it, and in the ways, I think, right? Something along the line. So it's re-roll to hit and any failed in the way tests, and you do not roll on the scatter table. That's right. It's an auto, yeah, direct hit. Okay, that's maybe too good. <laughs> That's that. That's probably a bit too good. If those automatic strength tens on whatever target you selected every turn, yeah, that's too much. Yeah. <laughs> it's only Bard has it. Does Gyrion have a black arrow? Yeah, no, oh, no, no. Bard's the only one that's got it. Gyrion yeah. doesn't have it. <laughs> yeah. Even give it volley fire. If this thing had volley fire, then I think it's a bit more viable, and it still, you know, it still sits snug. It's you know seventy five points with volley fire in my opinion. So I, it's shit. It's the reason I literally threw my last Windlands across the room, because <laughs> it's just bad. Yet I went and spent all my money on two more, so. <laughs> G-Dub's got me in a vice grip. They, uh, <laughs> they've got me where they want me. Okay, 
Should we do a, a rating for the army like we did last time? Hell yeah, let's do it. Okay, so updated rating. I think Richard, uh, me, and Ian gave it a five last time. And Sean, I don't know, I think you gave it a six. Like, what do you think with the addition of these four profiles to, to the list? How would it have changed your rating, your opinion of the army? It's It's going to depend on obviously what heroes and if i'm taking bard and brand i think it still sits at a, a six seven kind of marking but if you're running it with Girion, and i can tell you running you know the the knights with Girion is ridiculously good and i think that sits up at a, a high seven to low eight kind of frame i think it would bring my rating up to a seven i think there's still some things missing in the list i think getting a defense six warrior and higher courage and as we will talk about in the legion courage buffs to this army is really nice and also just some heroes are more fighty is is nice you know it's still a pretty thin on profiles but it has some tools now as before it didn't really it was only like one or two plays to play it so yeah th- i think i would give it a seven now instead of a five yeah probably um same score for me as well i think just because even though they got two additional hero profiles like you can't pair them with Darian, so it's like one or the other so essentially you choose the original which is one named hero or you go to a list with two named heroes which is decent i guess and then the windlands doesn't do anything still so it's mostly the knight of dale i think that buffs this army's rating and I guess, yeah, we we all thought it was a great profile, so I think definitely a solid army. I'm sure we're going to see it at, like, a big tournament. Like, uh, there's going to be people playing this Legendary Legion for sure. I think for the list overall, I think I'd give it, like, a 6.5, but then for the Legion, I'd probably give it a 7.5 because auto-passing courage on everybody is kind of ridiculous. Like, it's just, it's so good. King Brand suddenly becomes one of the best shamans in the game. That's the thing that makes, like, the Theodrids Legion list playable. And you just oh, exactly. get that for, like, no sacrifices, basically, in, in, in the way you build the list. I do love me Theodrids Guard. That is a list that I want to build one day soon. So I th- think this is a good place to transition to the list we're going to talk about today from Sean. So I know that we've talked about this a little bit on the last episode and also heard from people online, but this list is the Legendary Legion. It's almost the same as the Army list. And we were kind of talking offline that there isn't really a reason to run it pure anymore unless you're playing Gyrion, because the Legendary Legion is just better than the pure in, in every way. So just to summarize, the Legendary Legion... You get all the options in Dale except for Gyrion. We're assuming that you can take Windlances and that it's a typo that wasn't included in the army list. And there's one additional special rule, which is all Dale models gain this Warm Protector brand special rule. So they all essentially become brand's bodyguard. I think that's a, that, that's a real big buff to Dale, that. Something I, I slightly touched on earlier was I always found I struggled with courage uh, when playing Dale. So getting Swarm Protector is an incredible army bonus. I think the only change I would like to see to this Legion, uh, apart from it being an Elf Legion, not a Dale Legion, is the Swarm Protector being Gearing or Brand. So you can play either or. Yeah, I think it's a pretty competitive Legion, like uh, Richard said a little earlier. I think we're going to see this one on the table quite a bit when people play Dale. So do you want to go over the first list you brought just go over what's in the list and your general strategy. Do you want to do the 500 or the uh, the 800 one first? Maybe the 500 one first. 
So the 500 one is a list that I probably would never take. If I'm running Dale, I'm running at 500 points, I'm, I'm running Gearian because it's, it's 36 models or something at 500 points is silly. So this is 500 points on the dot, six points of might, nine bows, 29 models, and a break of 15. So it is King Brand with a warband consisting of five Knights of Dale, five Warriors of Dale with Esgroth bows, six Warriors of Dales with Spear and Shield, one Warrior of Dale with Banner, Spear and Shield. Second warband is Prince Bard with six Knights of Dale and then four Warriors of Dale with Esgroth bow. So only the two warbands, so quite small. I still think 20, 29 to 30 models is doable at 500. And then you've got two, uh, I'm not going to say massive combat heroes, but they are fairly big, beefy combat heroes that can do a job at 500 points. So that can be nasty. But once again, I probably would not be taking this at 500 points myself. So I noticed that your signature two banners in each army doesn't apply here. Yeah, that's it. Uh, so it, it doesn't apply there because it just, once again, I think that those heroes are overcosted. So I just, I couldn't find a spot to bring in that second banner at 500 points. 500 points with gear in, two banners every day of the week, baby. Like it's, it's not even a question. It's there, it's happening. It's probably one of the first things I'm putting into the list. So, yeah, sadly, missing out what, on two What points. if you want King Brand and, like, a captain? Wouldn't you get similar numbers as Gyrion? Because, I mean, Brand is a bit more expensive, but there's no synergy between Bard and Brand in this list, right? There's, there's no synergy between the two of them at all, really, is there? <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah, honestly, like... I don't think he would have the warband space because uh, a captain would only have 12. 12. Right? And he only has two slots in Bard's warband and one more in Brand's warband. But then you would be able to take that second banner, maybe. You can max out yeah. the captain's warband. I reckon, yeah. So I think there is definitely play in taking the captain with, I always get their names mixed up, with King Brand. Or even just skipping out on the Legendary Legion and just saying, hey, I'm taking Prince Bard at 500 points with a captain and, and troops there. I think that probably would be the better play. But once again, you, you miss out on Swarm Protector, which is pretty, pretty damn good. Yeah, I think this is solid. Like, you have above average numbers. But I guess, like, Ian might disagree with me here, but especially in lower points, I feel like courage is less important as well. Like, you're not going to need Fearless as much. I feel like it's more manageable. Not saying you won't come up against, like, a Return of the King Legendary Legion or something like that, but I just find it's probably more okay to skate by. Like, at 800-points match, there's almost guaranteed going to be some sort of terror or current shenanigans that's going to occur, right? So I feel like at 500, this Legendary Legion, like, the, the special rule is kind of just, I don't know, bonus, but... You, it's just kind of there, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I don't put too much stock into it. But I think it's just like the heroes are pretty average at best. It's mostly like the knights and like the bowmen that are going to make the list. So, yeah, I think it's going to be a solid list, but not going to, you know, break the world or anything. World beater. So I'll give this a hero fortitude. So, Richard, are you saying that this Legion might not be better than Pure in every way? Because the Legion forces you to take Brand. So at low points, it might be worse. Yeah, I mean, I think John brings up a good point. Like, if you value 
Gerian and like what he brings to the table and like compare him to like Brand or Bard. And like if you can get up into like the mid thirties and really spam out. Yeah, I think at 500 points, that's a valid point. Like that seems stronger to me as well. I can tell you who it is. <laughs> it's so good. 500 points Dale is dumb. They become the king of averages. It's it's incredible. I'll give the same uh, rating as Richard here, Hero Fortitude. I think it's a solid list, but I think with two-foot heroes at 100 or 110 points, it's a little too much. That's getting up close to half your points on two-foot heroes. Yeah. Well, there's still two three-attack heroes. With Strike, which is nice. Yeah, and they both have Strike, which is pretty good. And you have almost 30 models. Like, honestly, the only weakness with that is no March. But everywhere else, I think you're doing pretty good, right? Like, your defense is all right, because you got a bunch of defense six in there. Your fight value is fine. You got a whole one. Like, you're all strength. You're all at least fight four. Shooting is good. So I'm kind of conflicted, but I think I might go Valor. Hey, look, a lot higher than even Fortitude, honestly. (laughs) This is a list that, like, I could see myself taking to a 500-point tournament, but I'm not walking into that event going, I'm aiming to win this. I'm walking in with a, I want to try out these boys. Whereas if I walk into a 500-point tournament with Girion, my mind is, no, I'm pining for top three, minimum. Like, if I walk away not top three, I'm going to be disappointed. Hey, if you can top three with all Blackguard, you should be able to win the tournament with this easy. Hey, I won a tournament with uh, with Pure Wargs, so... <laughs> <laughs> there you go. This is better than Pure Wargs. <laughs> to, to, to be fair, it was, it was a 200-point tournament, no-named heroes, uh, a Warg chieftain, I had a Barra White, and I had however many Wargs. So pretty filthy, but hey, look. I like being able to walk around and go, hey, I want a tournament with 99% wags. <laughs> okay, well, why don't we go over your next list, see if those two heroes fare better in a Legendary Legion at a larger scale. Yeah, so this is one that I like a lot more. <laughs> Once again, I would probably take it with gear in there. So it's 800 points on the dot, 10 might, 14 bows, 49 models with a breakpoint of 25. They're numbers that I look at 800 and I really do like. Maybe one or two extra points of might would be nice, but hey, look, I'll take 10 points of might there. Uh, But this is a four warband army with one of my favourite little tricks in the game. So warband number one is King Brand with eight Knights of Dale, one Warrior of Dale with Banner, Spear and Shield, six Warriors of Dale with Spear and Shield and three with Spears, Prince Bard with seven Knights of Dale, one Warrior of Dale with Banner, Spear, and Shield. Five Warriors of Dale with Spear and Shield, and two with Spear. A Captain of Dale with Esgroth Bow. Twelve Warriors of Dale with Esgroth Bow. And then my favourite little trick in the game, a single Captain of Dale with Esgroth Bow. There is nothing I love more than a single drop in this game. After playing Dunedain for however long, I've learned the value of single drops, and it's absolutely incredible. And being able to do that with Dale, especially with at 800 points when your opponent's going to have three to four warbands, if you go second in terms of deployment, you've got that single drop. You've seen where two of those warbands from your opponent's going. If you go first, you've got that single drop. And so being able to put down your bow block, because I personally believe Dale works better with a bow block as opposed to spreading your bows all around, being able to place your bow block perfectly because of that single drop works wonders. 
Yeah, I think just seeing you go over this list, I think it's better in a 100-point setting. The two heroes are not taking up as large of a portion of your points, and you're able to get in closer to the numbers that you want. I know you're not getting Gyrian numbers, but it's getting closer to it than you were at 500 points. You probably would feel more dominant with the bow count that you get with Gyrian, but 14 bows is still really good. Yeah, point. Um, and two of those bows have might. You know, backed by might. Yeah, I think this is a really good list. I guess we talked about this a little bit last episode. It's like, it's strong, it looks solid, but it's just a bit boring. Like, if this is not your kind of playstyle, there's not a lot to it, but the heroes are solid, and you have quite a few Knights of Dale, so it's a strength three army on paper, but I feel like it can do more damage than that once you start playing against it because of Wild Blades. I think I'll give this, I'll, I'll bump up my score on this one. I give this, uh, I'll give this a Hero of Valor because the Swarm Protector also, I think, is more important at this points level because you're going to see more Courage shenanigans and stuff like that. So the Legion is a lot better at 800, or it looks a lot better. Yeah, so just to add on to what you said about Swarm Protector and what I said previously, not only do you see more shenanigans at 800, but if you're saying, you know, usually like the fearless special rule or bodyguard being placed on a model, it's on a per model basis. And it's usually like valued at, you know, say a point, you know, the higher points you go, the more models you have. So essentially you're benefiting more, you know. So having like a 50 model army with like all fearless, that's a lot more like ridiculous than, you know, having at like 25 models. I... I noticed your signature, the two banners, we see it finally. Usually I have, I guess, an issue with it, and that's not something I do myself because, you know, I like to max numbers and stuff. But, like, looking at this and you're pretty much getting 50 models, I actually quite like it. Especially, like, you know, you have, you know, these two foot heroes that you're heavily relying on. So if you put like a banner support behind each of these warbands and they could be fighting on like opposite ends of your battle line, I think that can be incredibly helpful. And I guess just with like a 50 model army, like very rarely are you just going to be clumped in like one spot where one banner is going to hit all the areas. So you're actually going to make really good use of the two banners. Like I think it's hard for me to get behind like two banners when you have like a elite 30 model army at 800. Just not for me. Uh, Yeah, I I wouldn't be doing that myself either. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. But yeah, I think I think it works in this sense. I agree with Charles. This one seems stronger to me, so Valor. Yeah, I agree. I, I would also put this one at a Valor, but this is like a higher Valor. The other one kind of like just pipped into it for me, but this one's like solidly in there. Yeah, it's good. It's a good representation of the list. I, and I do like the pick of the second captain over going like the three, one, like the two named heroes and one captain and then the Windlands. I know that's another build at 800, but I don't like that as much as the second captain. I just, it's just not going to work out as well. In terms of this specific list, I'm assuming it's a modeling constraint because you only get three warriors of Dale with bow in every box. But I would point out that you could get 15 warriors armed with bows and maximize it out. So I'd go for that and then drop one dude to give a whole bunch more spears out just on the barges for redundancy. But yeah, I can tell you that is a modeling issue, not having the uh, the models to get to, to that. But um, also 12 is 12 is enough in most cases. 12 3 plus strength 3 bows. I've watched front lines of D7 Dwarves just crumble to that. 
But yeah, 15 Boses would always be the way to go if, if I had the models. I'm just a poor uni student, so. That can afford two Three models of Dale <laughs> with bows, by all means. Gotta get your conversion kit out. Get rid of all those guys who just have the shields and the swords. Oh, I've got four, five sprues of just sword and shield Dale warriors in my dollar <laughs> chain. Yeah, not, not even being built. I'm nice. trying to sell them. <laughs> I'm trying to make other people that play Dale play them worse than me. Okay. Do you guys want to go over a third list? Always. So I wrote up a convenient alliance just for fun because most of the lists, actually all of the lists I've seen online have been in uh, one of the two legendary legions. So I just wanted to see if it can work. So let me know what you guys think. So this is a 700 point list and we have a Dale and Fiefdoms Alliance. So in the first warband, the leader is Prince Simmerhill on armored horse with Lance. He's leading two Knights of Dol Amroth on horse with Lance, seven men at arms of Dol Amroth, three Black Root Veil archers with spear and two Black Root Veil archers. Second warband, we have a captain of Dol Amroth on horse with Lance. He's leading six Axemen of Losternak and three Clansmen of Lamedin. And then in our Dale Alliance, we have Bard II, Prince of Dale, leading nine Knights of Dale and one warrior with spear, shield, and banner. So that comes to 36 models and eight might. So the idea behind this list is I pick fiefdoms because they're also another fight for army that can get the numbers up. And the idea was to combine the Knights of Dale with the Pikemen and Emerhills warband. So I have a small bubble of fight five buff on the pikemen. And essentially it's to have a shield wall, a wall of spears with a wall of blades in the front and then fight five supporting from behind. I know that I could have done that with Ormir with banner as well and get five five from there with either like fountain court guard or something like that. But Immerhill is less points. So I wanted to have the numbers to be reasonably high because I lose the army bonus. I didn't take any archers in Dale because I, I just thought that I'm not going to go the Bowman route. With the Captain's Hurok March, if I have to, I should be able to close in pretty quickly. But yeah, that's pretty much the list. I genuinely like it. I think the only change I would make to it is just scrap the Black Rubel archers. I'm very much in the boat of if you're going to take bows, you take bows. Also, I personally don't really like the Black Rubel archers as a uh, profile. So I think I would drop them and, you know, add in more pikes because I think that combination of pikes and, and those Knights of Dale, that's something I didn't think of. And it's something I want to I want to think a lot more on now. I think that's uh, it's quite nasty. Yeah, I guess if I had more pikes, I could even have two ranks of pikes and then there'd be three attacks at fight five. Also, the other thing to know is Immerhill is still a 12 inch banner effect to the pikemen and the knights, knights of Dolmroth. He's not a banner effect to all fiefdoms because you do lose the army bonus. You still will get a reroll in the pike block in every fight, even if the banner isn't in range. So it is still a fairly consistent pike block, I think. Filthy 12-inch banner on Emerhill. <laughs> Honestly, on that note, I think I'd probably just one for one swap out all the axemen for pikemen. Like, you might as well, because then you're, you're really getting the, the Emerhill bonuses. And, like, you don't need the the two-handing ability of Although the have, ability, because you have, yeah, you have the knights and you have the clansmen, so it's not a big deal. I was, I was about to say, hey, look, you keep the axemen for your two-handing piercing strike, but hang on a second, you've, you've got nine knights a day that do the exact same job, if not better. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I do like it. 
I think I think it's something I want to look at a lot more deeply in the in the near future. I never considered backing Knights of Dale with Pikes. <laughs> yeah, I think this is a very interesting combo. I guess like I was just thinking of the different variations. Like obviously, like I think Forlong is a very strong pick and similar points as the captain of Dol Amroth. But if you're aiming to get the march in there, I guess it makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a very interesting build. I think I'd be curious to see how it would perform. But I guess I I probably would just have to say Fortitude for now, even though I think it has potential to do better. But just because I'm not exactly sure how it plays out. <clears throat> I think I agree with Richard on that one. But more so because you don't really have any way to pull the enemy into the knights, so you get the bonus. Like, there's nothing that's forcing the opponent to, to do that. So you could just stand there and not charge, and then they'll just go, okay, I don't want to charge you either. And then, like, part of your line just won't be fighting. And you don't have any shooting to make up for that, so... So what you're saying is this is where the Windlands comes in? <laughs> yes. You need to be <laughs> taking one Windlands for every hero fortitude, because that is the maximum number you can take. So... <laughs> I would. What you got to do is swap out the captain for a captain of Dale, and then swap Imrahil for two wind lances. You're a legend instantly. Yes. Ooh, wind lances. So Sean, would you agree with uh, two guys on the ratings? Yeah, I think uh, the list as is. I think it does sit at a fortitude. I think with a few minor tweaks, uh, such as the uh, just addition of more pikemen, I think it maybe bumps up to a high fortitude, low valor. But no, as Ian said, there's there's no way to draw your opponent into you, which is you know where the value of the knights really come in. So I think I think I'll stick with that. Uh, yeah, I'll I'll stick with the fortitude on that one. Okay, let's move on to our open topic today. We'll be talking about model position. formations and basically how to place your models and your battle lines in the game and the idea for this topic came from one of our listeners who was curious what our thoughts were after listening to our spider queen episode and so i think this is a good episode to bring this up because earlier in the episode we were briefly talking about foot heroes and how they work and whether horses are necessary and i think also just talking about the wall of blades in some of the profiles today it just brings up a lot of interesting strategies so just starting out with i guess the profiles we talked about today like what do you guys think how important do you think positioning is in order to get the most out of those rules so we're talking about wall of blades and the king brand special rule Oh, I just want to jump in there, um, your introduction of the topic. It was uh, it was actually one of your teammates, Jack Edward, that we got this idea from. So shout out to him. <laughs> Jackie! You! Yeah. So to... Uh, sorry, just to touch on that real quickly. Uh, Jack Edward is the uh, the founding member or co-founding member of the, the Noobs, the original Noobs. And then um, it was a hostile takeover from me and Liam. So sorry, Jack, but also thanks. Uh, Papa Jack, as we like to call him. <laughs> sorry, but not sorry, basically. Sorry, but not sorry. 
Well, yeah, shout out to him and for all other listeners. Like, if you have any open topic ideas you guys want to hear about in the future, please let us know. Just send us a message on Facebook. I've got an idea. Open topic. How good's Dale? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I guess we talked about how good knights can be if you can draw your opponent in to charge you. So I guess, Sean, if you don't mind kicking us off, like, what kind of things would you do? I know you brought up shooting, but... What other sort of strategies would you aim for to get your enemy to charge you in order to get that bonus? Yeah, so if you're not, um, if you're kind of crossing off that that shooting element of you sit back and say, hey, you charge me and give me plus one to wound, or you don't move and I shoot you. Well, one of the things I do like to do is uh, if you're playing an objective game, you get to the front of that objective as quick as possible and you sit in front of it and your opponent has to come towards you. If if there's a three-inch aura around the objective, you sit in front of that three-inch, and that makes your opponent come to you, especially in the later parts of the game. The other one is working out what their key models in their battle line are. What model's going to stop the rest of their battle line from you know, moving through, breaking through? And so that's where you plug your Knight of Dale into one of those models. And then your opponent suddenly they're going, all right, cool. So I need to charge two, three more guys onto him because I need that spot open so I can, you know, break through the lines. So there are definitely a few tricks. Even throwing, one thing I do like to do is just spamming Knights of Dale onto my opponent's heroes, trapping them completely, and then watching my opponent freak out and go, all right, cool. I need to break all of them off that hero. And so they charge basically every single one of them and suddenly if you've got you know what five models around six models however many you can fit around you've got a bunch of models that now have plus one to wound against some random chuff that odds are being fight for your higher fight value or equal to so that there are definitely a few tricks that you can use to bring your opponent into you but obviously the main one when playing dale you sit back and say hey you charge me give me plus one to wound or you don't then i shoot you you decide. And the smartest move in that situation is to charge. That will always be the smartest move because obviously you've, you've got the chance to win the fight. So that that's the big factor of drawing your opponent into that, that wall of blades. So I just want to ask like in a more general sense, not specifically to Dale, but generally when you have two armies and they're moving in closer to each other and they're getting in close to combat, um, I think positioning is really important in that key moment because generally you want to be the one that has priority that first turn when you engage because you want to have the most ideal combats as possible. You never want to like be the one to move and you're like two or three inches away from enemy and then when it's their turn, they charge you. I think one big determination of that is a model's movement speed. And like usually when you're playing like a move six army against a move five, the move six would have the advantage because they can like stand outside charge range and basically decide when combat begins. And I think movement is really important and a key part of positioning and giving you an edge at the beginning of the combat anyway. Yeah, I do agree with a lot of that, Charles, but a little bit of pushback. I think you don't necessarily always want priority. I think it depends on the distance. And when I say, like, if you're within, like, two to three inches from each other, of course, then, you know, you winning the priority would be a big advantage for you because you can pick the combats and you can easily get your full line into them. But if it's two infantry armies that can move six inches and it's at, like, the distance between them is, like, at five and a half, 
you not necessarily want the priority because if you just recklessly charge in, you might not be able to get in all your models and then likely you're just going to get countercharged. So I think like positioning is super important, I would say getting that first like combat interactions like from my experience a lot of the times i think newer players don't realize this but that first combat or two probably makes or break the game like they can lose a lot of stuff and it's just going to be a snowball from there yeah no i I 100 agree with that i think with the way you position you need to and sometimes the first few turns can be a um a bit of a dance between the two armies trying to get into that ideal position and waiting for the first person to pounce. But if you can draw your opponent, if you can get them to come to you, especially if you've lost priority, if you're in a good position and you've lost priority, sometimes that's exactly what you want. You want to watch your opponent run into you, and then you go, awesome, cool. I've now got my back lines to come in and help out where it all needs to be. So I think that dance, and especially when you've got two good players going up against each other, you can have, you know, five, six really, really quick turns, which are just pure movement. And yeah, it's it's a dance. It's it's trying to figure out where you're going to sit, where you're going to go. There might be a few bow shots here and there to try and draw them in. And that's where honesty bows do come into this game. But yeah, positioning is so important and even deployment. I think I agree with like I agree with you a lot on that, about the, the positioning thing and like the high level play thing. It's kind of funny, like, the turns before engagements happen, if you see like people who've been playing for a while go at it, there's kind of like they're both trying to bait each other. Whoever has priority, they're trying to go, okay, is this is this enough to get you to charge? And then maybe I'll counter charge next turn. And it's it's very it's very interesting to watch and to see like once you start noticing that. A big trick I like using, and I mainly use it with Dale, but is the no move turn because that will shock your opponent. If you win priority and you just go, I'm not moving, done, your turn that alone can be enough to get your opponent to run forward because they go, oh, cool, they haven't done anything. They're not in a good position or, you know, whatever. Like, psychologically, they just go, cool, I'm going forward. I'm going at you. And if you can survive that, you know, one turn, if you've positioned yourself well enough to to survive that one one turn, that first charge, you're laughing. I love a good no-move turn. I love sitting there winning priority and just saying, all yours, brother. You take it. I'm not moving anything. So. Uh, that's that's actually a good point. And I think it's only doable because you're Dale. So I think that's the advantage of like having superior shooting, whether it's with bows or like throwing weapons. To be fair, I do it with my Gondor as well, but that is backed up by uh, Bolt Thrower. So thanks for sending me that Bolt Thrower, Charles. I really appreciate <laughs> it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say on like a similar note to that, sometimes if you know you're at a disadvantage in the move, like you're going to be forced into it and you can't get a good engage, sometimes it's worth it to instead of like doing that little dance, just throwing everything forward. Just oh, yeah. as long as you can take the charge. Because it kind of throws people off if they're expecting you to kind of like play around a bit. And you just go, no, here's everything. I'll just to chill out the uh, the noobs YouTube channel again. There is a bat rep on there. It's uh, Dunedain versus Angmar, and I caught my opponent out because he had set up his battle line and it was looking all good. And he was like, I've set it up so that he might send in like a few models here and there into combat. And I said, fuck it, and I full sent everything right up the guts. And just absolutely obliterated his army. And so there are moments like that where the full send is the game. That's the play. And sometimes if, you know, you know with the dance you're not going to be able to get into a good position, 
the best way to get into a good position is to just send it straight in and hope to God that you win these fights and you, you kill enough models that next turn you can reform a bit and you're suddenly in a better position. I think it comes down a lot to your army's playstyle. For example, if like an all-mounted Rohan army is facing an army of Moranans, Rohan, because of the movement advantage, the shooting advantage, they're going to choose when combat happens. So the orc player would probably try to make the combats as favorable as possible. They'll, they'll try to take the first charge, minimize the impact, and then next turn, try to surround and use their numbers as their advantage, right? So it's like, if you have the speed, if you have the hitting power, you're trying to maybe play off like your momentum and try to deal so much damage to your opponent that they can't recover. But while your opponent, the best thing for them to do is to try to make that happen as little as possible with a defensive positioning and then use their numbers to advantage once the two armies have closed in. One of my favorite anti, uh, anti-cav anti formations is where you've got, I don't think the viewers or the listeners will get a representation, but you guys will. So you've got four boys sitting in a square like this, and you've got four over here, four over here, four over here, and you've got a bit of a gap between so enough to get infantry through it and then around cav bases and everything if you can set that up you take the brunt of that first charge and it's best if your opponent has priority but you take the charge and then you go awesome cool i'm now funneling my back lines through these little gaps and out in around trapping your cav and now suddenly i'm in and amongst your warriors so if i get priority next turn I'm already there. I just need to push this model half an inch and I'm stopping that charge. I'm stopping this charge. Once I've stopped those charges, those those square formations now have the ability to rush forward and fill in more gaps as well. Because once you're able to get in and amongst an all-mounted army, you're in a really good spot. Once they can't move around and get out, you're laughing. You need to clog them down. But I think it's interesting. A lot of people don't think about like formations and army formations in terms of like, you know, I'm going to put these four models here and these four models here. And it's a proper, proper like military formation, I guess. I'm not a tactician or nothing. But I think people, yeah, undervalue that. And a lot of people just push their models forward and go, all right, this is my shield wall. But if you can figure out these more intricate formations to counter, whether it be cav, whether it be a bow army and, and so on, you can work wonders and you can do a lot of damage. No, that's uh, that's super interesting. I Yeah, I love it when um, people talk about more like a macro perspective on like the game strategy. You know, like I think we've also talked with uh, Yong Du, one of our guests in the past. I think he was talking about how he likes to like make a certain like castling position with his goblins when he has a certain position in almost like an L shape to try to corner off an area. And I know, I guess for myself too, I think if I have the superior numbers against my opponent, I like to do almost like a wide U shaped formation, which allows them to, you know, they can obviously go for my sides, but then I would just collapse a little bit more, especially if I have the shooting. So then it'd be harder for them to engage. But if they're going to try to come more directly into my center, then it's a very easily like wrap around. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think I think a lot of people don't think enough about like these general like formations and big game strategies. It's it's not always like a shield wall to shield wall. You have to know your force a little bit to see what it excels at. So I'm going to fire the first shot. I'm going to break the truce with Sean slightly here, but. Part with what Richard is saying, I think it's really important if you can get Turk March or horses for your heroes, 
It's because with that extra movement, you can wrap around and we're not even talking about the charge bonus, which is nice, but you get to get into a position that you normally wouldn't be able to on foot and you get to that surround quicker. And also just when you have a 10 inch move, you're usually dictating when the combat happens against a foot hero. If you want, you can stay out of charge range. And I think that is a huge advantage. Yeah, let me um, add on to this uh, before Sean gets to defend himself. Uh, let me get a few uh, punches in. <laughs> I think that's exactly the case, because I guess to bring in, like, one of my, like, go-to strategies is, you know, I love my mounted three attack heroes, and when we're doing, like, this dance that we talked about of, like, who gets priority in the shield wall where shield wall is about six inches apart... What I like to do, you know, as a sort of a aggressive strategy that throws off my opponent is my shield wall does not need to go in. And let's say I'm the second player to go and I don't want to charge in the full six inches with my infantry. So maybe I'll move in a, like one inch, but I will throw my cavalry heroes into their line in a place where likely the following turn, you know, their heroes won't be able to reach mine. And it's even better if my opponent only has foot heroes, because when I call a hero combat or something, it would put pressure on the opponent heroes, whether they want to call heroic strike or something. But the Green Dragon has talked about this in the past. You have the option of slingshotting your mounted heroes back to your line, so they're back to safety. You've only burnt a point of might, and you've taken out a couple troops. Or you could just go full send, you know, full YOLO, and then go take out another rank of troops. As long as you're positioned in a way where you're like, okay, I'll be fairly safe the following turn, even if I lose priority. So I love to do that. And usually I do take my opponents off guard because they're like, oh, well, he's not sending in the bulk of his infantry and his like shield wall. So I guess he's not going to do anything. But I'm like, no, nah, I'm just going to send in my heroes. No, you, look, you, you definitely make fair points. And as much as I'm personally, I don't like taking my heroes on horses, there is obviously value to it. As you said, like those slingshotting, Elendil does it best. Uh, he charges in free heroic combat and then bitches back to his lines. I've watched games where Elendil on his own has taken out just ranks of dwarves because, you know, keeps losing priority. So he just goes, cool, charge in. Oh, cool, I've won that combat. I've killed stuff. Bang out I go. Next turn, same thing. And it's just back and forth, back and forth. And the, the shield wall troops are just sitting there going, oh, we don't need to do anything now. The big boy's doing it all. But yeah, I think on that, as I said, like March as well, I think March is over, or people overrate March. March is an awesome tool. It's one that I like to have in my back pocket. But if I don't have it in an army, I'm not stressing too much. The same as the same as uh, mounted heroes. Like I did, it doesn't bother me too much. If my opponent wants to send their hero in, awesome. I will do everything I can to make sure that hero does not leave that turn. I will keep that hero there. And if I somehow win, bang, that's a dead horse. I'm killing that horse. I'm dropping that horse. And then you're down ten points. I'd value an extra troop over a horse. Let's say a knight of jail, for example. Yes, they're one point extra, but I can find that one point somewhere. I would value that over a hero on a horse. I do love taking Hurin in my Gondor list. Hurin on horse with his Master Forge two-handed sword. He runs around on horse and he does that with his three might. He runs in with, uh, I think I run him with six or seven knights as well. 
but charge into my opponent, bitch back out. And then I just, I keep doing that. And and so it, it does work. Don't get me wrong. I do like, and I do see the value, but my personal play style, March and Mounted Heroes aren't necessary. But I, I do see their value. I do see their effect. I cop it a lot when I go up against Mounted Heroes, but I think I've learned and I've taught myself how to deal with Mounted Heroes whether that be bogging them down and getting rid of that horse early on or putting myself in a position where if my opponent does send that horse in, I've got a captain or a big hero or something to try and deal with that. And then that keeps my opponent's mounted hero behind their lines and suddenly their mounted hero is doing nothing. I've had games where I've gone up against Imrahil and all he's done the entire game has been a 12-inch banner which is awesome, but I've been able to position myself in such a way where he doesn't see the value in charging Imra Hill into anything because I've got something to counter that or, you know. So there is value. There is value in Mounted Heroes and in March, but there's there's ways to negate those effects. Sounds like the ramblings of a madman, doesn't it? Or genius. (laughs) Who knows? Who knows? It's all perspective. So I guess my question for you then is, I see your point with Foot Heroes, um, they are cheaper and you do also get a smaller base. So there's some advantages for that too. You can fit into smaller parts of uh, a battle line and get into a combat that you might not be able to on a cav base. But what about scenarios where you have to get somewhere like you have to close in really quickly? So for example, I know you take a lot of bows, but like, If you're playing an army that, let's say, has better shooting than you, and you have to march all the way across the board, or if it's Seize the Prize, for example, where you want to be in the middle as soon as possible, your only option is to just let your opponent take the prize and then try to shoot whoever carries it. But then by then, you can always just pass it off and then run away, right? So like in situations where you need a closing quickly, I find it's hard for an all-foot army, especially without your march. I mean, there are ways to still win the game, but I don't feel like your favorite. Yeah, so there's, as, as I said, there's definitely value in Heroic March. And, you know, I have used it myself in games of Seize the Prize and even Heirlooms where you, we've all rolled for, the, you know, the first five and it's not there and you suddenly go, oh shit, it's that one. So you've got to get there. So, you know, when I have March in my list, I will use it, but I'm not building my lists around it. But sometimes I like to let my opponent get the objectives. It gives them a comfort. It, it makes them feel like they're on the front foot, which they are. Without a doubt, they're on the front foot. But it lowers them down and it, they get a lot easier and they start making mistakes because they're, they're like, oh, whoops, that was a mistake. But, ah, oh, well, you know. And so I, you know, take advantage of those small mistakes and you start closing in. If, if they have better shooting here in Australia, we've got quite a lot of terrain on the table. I haven't seen many photos um, over your side of the world, but in England and in Europe, I've, I've looked at tables and I've gone, I want to move to those countries because how is Dale not winning every single tournament? Like these open tables are perfect for Dale. Whereas here, like we have really tight, we've got re- really tight tables. So if you're going up against shooting, you can kind of hide from that. And, you know, I, I use a lot of shooting armies, so I have learned and figured out how to verse other shooting armies, which it's always a nasty time. But you just have to realise with shooting armies, you just need to go for it. If you've got March, March to get through it. If you don't, you've just got to move forward and try and mitigate as much as possible. Give yourself as many in the ways as possible. Hide your heroes until you get there. But ultimately, like a, a big part of the game for me is the psychological factor. 
and trying to wig your opponent out on the table by doing things they wouldn't quite expect. As I said previously, like the no-move turn, for example, letting them take an objective. Hold ground's a fun one, letting your opponent just put everything in the middle of the board and then going, all right, cool, in I come. So, yeah, just things like that, I think, definitely help with movement, positioning, not having march, and so on. I had something else I was going to say, but it completely just zoomed out of my brain. I'm sure it'll come back to me at some point. I agree with, you know, kind of like psychologically, like get the advantage and do unexpected things. But I feel like if you're letting your opponent get the prize and seize the prize or the heirloom first, just for the psychological advantage, that's almost like a boxer, like allowing himself to get hit in the face a couple of times, get knocked down just to get that. I'm like... At some point, I feel like you're giving away too much. I, um, like, just in my my personal life, I work well under pressure and stress. So I think that's where that aspect comes into the game for me. Once I'm under the pressure, uh, under the pump, I kick into gear. And that's why I love Dunedain so much, like playing Dunedain, because every single game, and this is why I'm going to love Bayornings, every single game from the get-go, you are on the back foot. You are struggling. I don't know if that's going to be the case with the Bayarnings Legion. <laughs> yeah, to be fair, that Bayarnings is <laughs> a little scary. 800 points, two bears, and 20 warriors. Hello. But yeah, so like I do like being on the back foot. My play style in general is very defensive, and I mop up a lot of my points in those last three-ish turns of the game. Yeah, in the la- later parts of the game. Once again... And what's great about this hobby is everyone's got different play styles. Everyone plays armies completely differently, even if they're playing the same army. All factors, I guess, from the person themselves changes how you play the game and play these armies. And it's about giving yourself the advantage wherever you can. And if the advantage for you is putting yourself on the back foot because it kicks you into gear, well, then it's an advantage nonetheless. (laughs) I think you bring up a good point with the Dunedain. I think when you're playing a elite army or like an all-hero army, positioning becomes super important because every model you lose is a bigger deal than the average army. And I know Ian hasn't said much in this open topic, but Ian's a very technical player. And when it comes to like micro positioning, uh, I think Ian is pretty experienced at that. And like playing against him, it's, he's always careful of where to move his models so that his opponent can't get a hero combat into his hero or can't get at the banner. And I feel like when you're playing a hero army or something that's like super elite and your numbers are low, it becomes even more important because you don't have enough models to cover every hole in your line, right? So you have to make really smart decisions and you can't make mistakes. Okay, I guess I should say something about positioning. (laughs) (laughs) Um, He did this for you. I don't know. I'm just trying to think of like how I normally do things. And it's tricky. I guess I guess on what Charles was saying, I guess a lot of my positioning, it's just about maximizing the heroes and making sure that my heroes are where they want to be and fighting what they want to fight. And there's no way that that can be disrupted. Right. So if that means making sure you put extra models around in your backline so they can't get her all combated into or I don't know, like making holes in your line specifically so they can charge through that in the opening engagement, whatever that entails. That's always a priority for me. 
And thinking ahead too is, is really big, right? Like you might move, do something in a certain turn, like, oh great, this is a great position for my hero to be in. And I can hurl a combat through two lines of guys and it'll be perfect. And then next turn, oh, now I'm exposed to like Azog and he's like staring at me and can charge into me. So you want to avoid situations like that or obvious ones at least while still maximizing the use of your warriors too, which is, I don't know, it's just practice, I guess. Thinking ahead is a huge part of the game. Being able to look two, maybe even three turns ahead, absolutely massive. But the real big one for me is is just gut instinct. Like, I put my army on the table, I look at my opponent's army, and it's not until we get into, you know, combat that I start having these, like, smaller, more detailed plans. But half the time, it's my gut telling me, hey, you should probably fill that gap. Or, you know, oh, I'm, I want to charge so-and-so into whoever, or maybe I don't do that. Like, yes, I've got the advantage there, but in the next turn or two, who knows? And so I think gut instinct should definitely play into this a fair bit. Obviously, practice makes perfect as well. There's no better teacher than failing. So, yeah, no, you guys make real good points on it all. I think one tip, I guess, I wanted to bring up on a more technical level is I think what Ian says is true. Like, you definitely want to focus on what your heroes are doing and, like, have a general game plan in combat. But I think the next level to that is preventing what your opponents are trying to do as well in combats. Because you you know they're also trying to do the combats into your guys and they're trying to, like, crush one of your flanks. And I actually find that a lot of the, I guess, higher level moves when I see like other like great players play as well is not utilizing their warrior models, not necessarily to charge, but to put in positions where it inconveniences the opponent heroes and like blocks them from what they're trying to do. So whether it's like, you know, you've already engaged the enemy hero, but you're bringing in your guys just to trap them, maybe not even necessarily engaging them because you don't, if you lose the fight, you don't want to lose extra numbers. But, you know, you're trapping getting, by yeah, just trapping by being in the vicinity or, you know, noticing that they have a scarier hero than you. And like, there's, you know, nothing stopping them from hero combating into your line. You know, you can try to like do some blocks there and, yeah, just small things like that. There's nothing that will annoy your opponent more than seeing that they're setting up a heroic combat and then just putting one model into that spot that you know they're trying to go. And then they're like, oh, cool. So if I heroic combat, I'm, I'm wasting a point of might to kill one extra model. That's always a good laugh. On that note, yes. I remember one game specifically where I was playing against Alex and I had my Sildar going up a flank. And I charged one dwarf, and I was like, cool, I'm going to hurl combat, and then I'll go straight through his line. And he just kind of looked at it, because he was moving second, and then he put one dwarf behind that guy, and it was in a little alley, and then he put another dwarf behind that guy, and it was just like, cool, you're wasting two turns here. And I was like, oh, oh no. <laughs> so that's a great shout-out. The other thing I wanted to say is, I guess, more in positioning at the start of the game, and this happens less with more experienced people, but people who are new generally tend to put their heroes right up in the front line at the start of it. And I think, at least personally, that is like one of the last things I want to do is right before you engage, because I always want to have the option to choose where my heroes engage, be that on the first turn of combat or the second turn of combat. But if they're embedded in your shield wall from the get-go at the front, well, A, they might just get shot out. B, you're not going to get any choice in where they go after like maybe the first turn. They're going to be stuck in there. On that, I love that first turn of combat where I don't send any heroes in most of the time. 
99% of the time, unless I'm in a really good position and my opponent's out position, my heroes don't face combat for the first two, maybe three turns until I find the right spot for them. So yeah, a lot of the times, as you said, Ian, you will find new players where they will throw their heroes in because this, this is my big killing power. These are the guys that are going to get the job done, which they are. But I think being a bit more reserved and coming from the side of a, a player that is quite defensive in nature, which I am, just keep keeping your cards close to your chest. And if you luck out and you can drop their shield or their uh, their lines down and then suddenly you've got, cool, I got two full stack heroes ready to, to run amok. Yeah, so no, that's a very good point there of not having those heroes always at the front. Sometimes those heroes do not need to be in combat straight away. I will say that there are situations where you'll want them in the front. For example, you're going to be calling Heroic Move or Heroic March, because I've seen, and I've done this myself, where I've put my heroes too far back when they're calling Heroic Move, and then realizing that they have to move first. And so the rest of my models benefiting from with me aren't able to move to where I want them to. So like, yes, you need to create in the ways so that your heroes don't get shot out. But at the same time, there's no rule that works every time. You really have to look at the situation. Sometimes a hero does need to be in the front line. Even with that, on that note, I do this quite a lot where my my front line will have a gap in the middle so that if I do decide to call this heroic move, my hero who's sitting behind my lines, whether it be one or two deep, has this gap that he can go, all right, cool, there's my move out. Yes, he's not going to get his full six inches of movement. He might only get, you know, a proper four inches forward or whatever. But in most cases, that's that's still enough to, to get yourself into a good position. So leaving these little gaps for your heroes is is a trick that I, I like using a lot. So you'll, you'll see my shield walls quite often not be base-to-base shield walls, but it'll be like one model and then it'll be, depending on how I want to do it, it could be an inch or less than an inch so my opponent can't, you know, get through, but I might be able to squeeze another guy in and all those kind of things. It allows heroes to shoot through as well. If your opponent charges you and they can't charge your heroes, but your heroes have the ability to then charge after that, you're you're laughing. That has been our discussion on model positioning. Thank you, Jack, for suggesting this topic. You can find all the lists we talked about today on Facebook. Just search Into the West podcast and it should come up on our page. Thank you, Sean, for coming on to talk about Dale once again. It's great to hear your insight and your experience. Uh, thanks for having me on. It's uh, it's always fun to to have a yarn with you boys, and you know, especially people that aren't you know from the same community, metas overseas, and people's opinions of different things. The game is so different in every single country, so it's it's always good to have a chat with you guys. Awesome. Uh, thanks to all our listeners for listening, and look forward to the next episode of Into the West. Mm-hmm.